Section 12 of The Life of a Fossil Hunter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of a Fossil Hunter by Charles Sternberg. Chapter 10 In the Red Beds of Texas for the Royal Museum of Munich, 1901. Warned by my experiences in the red beds of Texas without a team of my own, when I made a contract to conduct an expedition there under the direction of Dr. von Zittel of the Paleontological Museum of Munich, I resolved to ship my own horses and outfit to the field. I gave them into the charge of my son George, who was rapidly becoming a most valuable assistant, and saw him put them aboard a freight car and get in himself. The next time I saw him was at Rush Springs in the Indian Territory, on top of a freight car, skilled in all the lore of a brakeman. We reached the old camp at Willow Springs on the 30th of June, 1901. The heat had already set in, promising the hottest season that I had ever experienced in the valley of the Big Wichita. It grew more and more intense as the months passed, the mercury often rising to 113 in the shade. All the water dried up in both the natural and the artificial tanks, and the short buffalo grass in the pastures curled up and blew away. We were camped in Wagoneer's Great Pasture, twenty-five miles wide by fifty long, and I saw cattle die of thirst and starvation. Some had become so hungry that they had eaten the prickly pear, spines and all, and their mouths were full of putrefying sores where the spines had worked out. The ground was hot, and the air like the breath of a furnace, and we had to haul all the water we used in camp from six to twenty miles. To add to our troubles, one of our horses, Baby, almost cut off her foot in a wire fence while striking at the flies, which, during the day, never ceased to torture man and beast. Even at night the horned cattle were not free from them, for they clustered around the base of the horns, fifteen or twenty deep, like hives of swarming bees, for rest. The country was indeed a desert, and deserted. All the people who had settled this valley on Coffee Creek or other streams had gone, never to return. The cowman had bought up all the homesteads. The schoolhouse in which I had so often attended worship had been moved from its foundations, and the houses which had once echoed to the merry cries of children stood empty and desolate. How can I describe the hot winds, carrying on their winds clouds of dust, which were so common that year and the next. I once went to Godwin Creek, south of Seymour, passing on the way a hundred-acre field of corn. It belonged to an old man, who had cultivated it until it was perfectly clean, and the long rows of living green were beautiful to see. When I passed it again on my way back, a hot wind was blowing, so hot that I had to shield my face and eyes to keep them from burning. The beautiful field, upon which the old man had looked with so many hopes of a rich harvest, had been scorched and seared as if by a blast of fire. So the weeks lengthened into months, and the merciless sky still refused us rain. At our camp on Coffee Creek, the heat was so terrible that we could not keep eggs, butter, or milk, or many other edibles necessary to comfort and health. The result was that my stomach soon got out of order, and a severe attack of biliousness set in attended by an incessant longing for a drink of cold, pure water. I thought by day and dreamed by night of the well on my farm at home, 
with the clear water dripping from the bucket. For our only drink, except coffee, was the warm, foul-tasting water which had been brought in in a barrel from twenty miles away, and had soon become stale. Even that was always giving out at inconvenient times. Whenever we came to a new fossil locality, and the hope was strong within me that now we would make a rich find, George was sure to say, Papa, we're out of water, and we had to make the long journey through the awful heat over the dust-laden roads to the well at Seymour, twenty miles away. When we reached it at last, how we buried our faces in the bucket and the cool water. But I will not dwell on this side of the picture, because there is another side. We were finding in wonderful abundance the material which we had come to secure, and the hardships were forgotten in the joy of success. In spite of the many obstacles with which we had to contend, we secured the collection described in that great letter from Dr. Von Zittel which I publish here in facsimile, and which I prize more than any letter I ever received. Before I accepted Von Zittel's offer that I should conduct an expedition for him in the breaks of the big Wichita, I wrote to him, telling him how my work for science had had, from a material standpoint, no great returns. My life, I said, had been a constant struggle to secure sufficient funds to carry on the work, and the men who had bought my material had, for the most part, felt that they were doing good service to their museums by securing it at the lowest possible price, without taking into consideration that even a fossil hunter has to live. It was with pleasure indeed that I received the answer of this great German, whose works on paleontology are used as textbooks in our universities. Dr. Von Zittel wrote, I am sorry that from your letter you did not consider yourself in a position to work for the Munich Museum in Texas this spring. I can readily understand that after your long activity in scientific fields, without material results, you are somewhat discouraged and embittered, and feel that your services in this direction have not been sufficiently appreciated. For my part, I have done my best to give you credit for the scientific side of your work, and your collections from Kansas and Texas in the Munich Museum will always be an everlasting memorial to the name of Charles Sternberg. Such a letter, from a man like von Zittel, put new life and courage into my veins, as a similar letter from Professor Cope had once before, and made me feel that a little suffering, more or less, mattered nothing when measured with such enduring results. Cope is dead, and von Zittel is dead, so far as such men can die, but I have preserved their letters as heirlooms for my children's children, for they testify that, no matter what the common herd may say about me, I have accomplished the result which I set before myself as a boy, and have done my humble part toward building up the great science of paleontology. I shall perish, but my fossils will last as long as the museums that have secured them. But to return to the Texas Permian, I will follow my notebook for a while, as that, perhaps, is the best way to give my readers an idea of our life there. On the 11th of July was in Seymour. I write, A big dust storm struck the town, and this evening rain is falling. This is indeed a great relief to me, as it will make the air cooler and give me water in the breaks, so that I can visit localities I could not before. My wagon, brought from Kansas, is a narrow-gauge one, and all the roads in Texas are cut by broad-gauge wagons. This forces my team to pull with one set of wheels in the rut, and the other outside. Consequently, the labor is wearing them out, in connection with the awful heat. I am, therefore, having new axles made, a long and tedious work, 
and I am resting out of the heat. Jesse S. Williamson has told me to occupy the building owned by himself and Will Minnick. It is a little cabin within a mile of the bone bed near Willow Springs. It has a tank of water for the horses, and is but a mile away from the schoolhouse where a well has been dug. A few buckets full a day, enough for camp use, trickles into it. This cabin proved to be a great accommodation, especially as the owners had a stack of sorghum, which was placed at my disposal, and saved me the trouble of hauling out hay. As one of my spindles was broken, I had to send a Lawrence for another, and it was not until the 16th that I got my wagon from the shop. I then drove out to my old camp on Gray Creek in Mr. Craddock's pasture. Here, too, was the center of a field from which I had reaped a rich harvest for Professor Cope. On the 17th, my notebook states that I was in the field all day and found fragments of skeletons and skulls, all broken to pieces and mixed up together. I could not find the horizon from which these specimens came. They were all piled together with concretions in a long, narrow wash, while above there was a level, denuded tract covered with concretions. The only way in which I can account for the mixture of fragmentary specimens is that a bone bed lay above the level stretch, and in the disintegration of the deposit the fragments were carried by floods into the narrow gulch, until not a sign of the original bed was left to mark its site. I had sent a large collection from this same locality to Professor Cope, and he had been very much interested, but had also been extremely tantalized by the fact that there were great numbers of fragmentary skulls, and that although the fragments looked freshly broken, none of the pieces could be united to form a perfect skull. I now found the same trouble again. Possibly some of the missing fragments of the skulls in Cope's collection, now in the American Museum, may be in the lot sent to Munich, and vice versa. On the 19th, I found the nearly perfect skull of a new species, and on the 20th, another very fine skull near the locality from which I had secured the many fragments a day or two before. It was the skull of the great salamander, Erops megacephalus cope. There were six pairs of large teeth in the roof of the mouth, and a single row of various sizes in the mandibles. Some of the points had been broken off and were lost. The skull was over twenty inches long. All the bones are beautifully sculpted on the external surface. A few years before I had found a nearly complete skeleton of this creature, some twelve feet in length, lying at right angles to the Chisholm Trail. It was preserved in hard concretions, and had weathered out on the slope of a hill. The feet of countless cattle, just starting out on their weary journey for Kansas and the north, had worn away the solid siliceous envelope to the bones. How the Salamander tribe has degenerated since the days of these powerful creatures! Supplied with both gills and lungs, they dominated land and water, and increasing and multiplying in the tropical atmosphere, filled the swamps and bayous of this region. Today we pull from some well or spring a weak creature called a mud puppy, and it is hard to realize that its ancestors, twelve million years ago, were strong and mighty, the monarchs of creation. To return to Mr. Craddock's pasture, on July 20th my notes read, I am suffering from the heat, my tongue badly coated. However, I have got some splendid material. If I succumb to the awful heat and die, my discoveries will have done much towards enriching the collection at Munich. On July 21st, I continue. It is fearfully hot today, and I cannot work the beds without great suffering. I found a little skull. The hot weather continued, and I went out to the cabin on Coffee Creek. Pet, 
our four-year-old got away, and when George took her from a herd of horses, he found a big hole in her shoulder. Both horses are failing fast, my notes read. Have to send George in for feed. It is hard on the team to have to haul a load in this weather through dust knee-deep, with no water fit to drink. On the 26th I was left alone, and went a mile north to the bone bed and began to dig into the face of a hard greenish layer of claystone, near a place where I had found some fragments in former years. I was delighted to find a pocket with two good skulls in situ, and the next day George returned with his load, and I had some fresh water, which soon, however, grew lukewarm. We found two more skulls in the pocket referred to, one of which was the Labidosaurus hamatus cope, one of the earliest of reptiles. Another was that of a new genus and species which I found later, when we went back to Gray Creek to get a camp ready to receive Dr. Broly. He was to come directly from Munich to my camp in the Red Beds. On the 1st of August, as we were out of provisions, we went into town. I rented a large room over a store building, and made tables and unpacked specimens for Dr. Broly's inspection. While I was working there, a storm of grasshoppers struck the building, beating against it like hailstones, and the next morning the ground was covered with them. On the 5th, we drove out to our old camp on Gray Creek, and pitched two tents with the fly stretched between. The walls were elevated, and we were able to make a shade against the rays of the relentless sun. I went a couple of miles north, over the table mountain above camp, and found two extremely beautiful skulls of the long-horned amphibian, Diplocalus magicornis cope, a strange animal of which I have already spoken. I found also a specimen of the gar pike, that ancient fish which has left its enameled scales in the rock of many formations, whose descendants are still living in our rivers. On the 8th of August, in spite of the debilitating heat, I started on a long trip to the head of Brushy Creek, on horseback. I climbed Table Mountain, which was, perhaps, three hundred feet above the camp, and struck west along the divide between the two creeks. I frequently left the horse tied to a fence while I plunged down into the gorges on either side. At last, about three miles northwest of camp, at the bend of a branch of Brushy Creek, I noticed a denuded tract of the kind of bed I have already described, to which an abundance of bog iron lent a metallic luster, the very place to look for fossils. The first thing I found was the perfect skull, six inches long, of a Batrachian, Diplocalus copi broili. Then, lying on the surface, another beautiful skull, Veronosaurus acutorostris broili, with many of the bones of the skeleton, from which the hard red matrix had been washed off clean. The upper and lower jaws were locked together, and the long row of glistening teeth shone in the fierce light. The eyes were set far back, and the nose openings were near the front. It was so different from anything I had ever seen before, that I was sure it must be new. Dr. Broyley, in describing it, speaks of it as the most perfect specimen ever found in these beds. Nearly all the other skulls I had secured are compressed vertically, while this was compressed laterally. I found in this bed hundreds of fragments of rock filled with the glittering scales of fishes, as brilliant now as in the days when they covered the bodies of these old fish. Here, also, I discovered a huge specimen of the long-horned species, Diplocalus magicornis, and others much smaller, which proved to be the new Diplocalus copi. This, my notes say, promises to be one of the finest localities I have found, and pays for the day of search under trying conditions. When I reached camp, 
I found that George also had had a red-letter day, and had found a bone bed of minute animals on some breaks of Grey Creek under the roots of the grass in a washout. He brought in a skull, the smallest I have ever collected, with a great many broken bones and teeth. One specimen, which Dr. Borley named in my honor, Cartacephalatus Steinbergi, was not over half an inch long. I secured here six skulls of the new Dipocalus copi, also. On Monday, the 12th of August, Dr. Borley reached Seymour, and George and I met him at the station. A tall, strong, fine-looking German, with a full beard, he impressed me very favorably. The great difficulty was that, owing to my deaf ear, it was very hard for me to understand his broken English, and unfortunately I could not speak a word of German. I judged that he had learned his English from an Englishman, and not from an American, as he used a peculiar brogue with which I was not familiar. George learned to understand him better, and they became the best of friends. We went back to camp, where we had the pleasure of Dr. Borley's company for two weeks, during which I formed a friendship which I have always greatly appreciated. He was delighted with my work and the material we had secured, but, as he says in the introduction to his great work describing my material, he could not stand the heat. He describes part of my material in his splendid work on the Permian Stegocephala and Reptiles, published in Stuttgart, with 120 pages of text and 13 fine plates. He says on page 1, The excellent results of the expedition of Mr. Sternberg in the spring of 1901 to Texas, which brought many very valuable specimens of Europs, Demetrion, and Labidosaurus to the Paleontological Museum's collection caused the conservator of the Royal Paleontological Collection, Councilor von Sittel, to send out in the year of 1901 a second expedition to the Permian beds of the same territory, he being again successful in securing Mr. Charles Sternberg, the excellent collector from Lawrence, Kansas. Already in June of the same year, he was in the midst of his sphere of activity in the Wichita Permian beds, near the small town of Seymour, Baylor County, located on a branch of the Fort Worth and Denver Railroad. On my arrival in the camp, through the assistance of the Royal Bavarian Academy of Science, it was made possible for me to take part in the collection from the beginning to the end of August. I found already a very good collection of very rich materials, which, besides parts of Demetrion, Labidosaurus, Bariotricus, and other thermomorphs, included an excellent collection of different examples of Divocalis, of which some still possessed the greater part of the vertebrae. During my stay in that territory, our work principally consisted in making collections from our camp. We were compelled, on account of scarcity of water from the great heat, to keep near Seymour. I am a patriot, and it would have pleased me to see all these splendid examples of ancient life enrich our home museums. But Germany is my fatherland, at least it was the fatherland of my fathers, and I am glad to have been able to build up there the best collection of Kansas and Texas forms in Europe. One of the greatest prizes of the Munich collection is a skeleton of Labidosaurus, now mounted there and collected by myself. Labidosaurus is important because it belongs to a very ancient and primitive group of reptiles, which, according to Professor H. F. Osborne and other authorities, were the ancestors of all the later forms of reptiles. After Dr. Borley left to return to Munich, I continued my work, camping on East Coffee Creek. Here again our search was rewarded. I found another bone bed of very small lizards, some of them, I think, not over six inches long. The skulls ranged in size from less than half an inch to an inch in length. Cope has given them the name Lacerophus tricarinatus. 
Doctors Borley and Case, in their valuable papers, have shown that this lysorophus is one of the most interesting genera of all this wonderful fauna, since in the structure of the skull it is a veritable missing link between the Bactria and Reptilia. The deposit in which I found the Lysosaurus was large, containing thousands of bones and many fine skulls. I am convinced that these creatures must have hibernated, as many of them were coiled in a circle in an envelope of hardened mud, and appear to have lain down never to wake again, each tiny reptile in its nest having been preserved through all the ages since. The flesh, of course, decayed soon after death, but by the process of petrification the bones have been replaced by stone. Now I have always wanted to explain to a popular audience what this process of petrification really is. The word petrification should be dropped from our vocabulary because it signifies an impossibility. I remember, as a boy, translating from the Latin a sentence like this, his bones became stone, that is, turned to stone, and one often hears the expression petrified wood as meaning wood which has turned to stone, as if there was a process in nature by which one substance could be turned into another, as the philosopher's stone would have changed iron to gold. As a matter of fact, the process denoted by the word petrification is a process of replacement, not of transmutation. After the death of these ancient animals and the decay of their flesh, the water that passed through the bones carried from the cells of which they were made up the organic contents which decay, and left in their place deposits of the silica or lime which it held in solution. The same process continued when the lagoon bed was elevated above the water as solid rock. The rainwater, seeping down through rock and fossil alike, left in the bone cells the mineral matter it was carrying, until they were filled with it. Then, in process of time, the cell walls were broken down and rebuilt with silica or lime, and complete fossilization, or petrification as it is called, takes place, as in the case of the fossil bones in the Texas Permian. I found one specimen of the latter-spined reptile in which the bones had been entirely replaced by iron ore, and others made up of silica. How long does it take for the mineral matter to replace entirely the original bones? Ages upon ages. I found on the plains of Kansas a quarry of elephant bones, from which I took over two hundred teeth of the Columbian mammoth, some of the larger ones weighing fourteen pounds each. The broken bones were scattered by the ton through the matrix. I had them analyzed by Dr. Bailey, head of the chemical department of Kansas State University, and he found only ten percent of silicated matter in them. That is, they were only ten percent less rich in phosphate of lime than Armour's ground bone meal. This great elephant lived about the time of the Ohio Mastodon, whose bones had been found in such a position as to indicate that they were buried when Niagara Falls were six miles below their present site. So if we knew how long it has taken the river to dig six miles of its big ditch, we could tell how long it has taken to impregnate the bones of the mammoths in central Kansas with ten percent of silica. How foolish, then, to speak of completely petrified men, when man had probably not made his appearance in America at the time of the mammoths. The rocks of the Texas Permian, as I have already mentioned, are of red clay filled with concretions of every conceivable form. I remember once rounding a butte and seeing before me hundreds of coconuts, some whole and others with brownish shells broken, showing the white meat within. Absent-mindedly I sprang from my horse to feast upon them, to find that they were concretions which had so closely imitated coconuts in shape and color that even I, an experienced collector, had been momentarily deceived. I knew, too, of a man who exhibited a collection of large concretions as fossil Hubert squashes. 
and heard no one doubting that they were all that their label claimed. There are two distinct formations in the Permian of this part of Texas, which give character to the surface of the country. They are as different as if separated by hundreds of miles. I visited one locality on Pony Creek, where the red beds lay on top of the gray beds conformably. Looking to the west, a vast panorama, desolate and forlorn, of crumbling and denuded bluffs, narrow valleys, and beetling crags spread out before me, with the usual red color dominant everywhere, its monotony relieved only here and there by the green of some stunted mesquite or patch of grass. To the east stretched the narrow valley of Pony Creek, whose topography is the same as that which is so familiar to the residents of eastern Kansas, a ledge of gray sandstone forming a narrow escarpment on either side, and following the trend of the hills round the ravines, with grass coming down in gentle swells to meet it or rising to it from the bottom lands below. The greatest thickness of this sandstone, as I observed it, was at the head of a narrow gulch near my camp in the creek bottom, eight miles north of Seymour. I made a section there, and sent samples of the rock to Munich. I observed this rock under peculiar circumstances, and found that it solved an interesting problem, that of the water supply of the red beds. I discovered why the water that falls where these beds only are exposed runs off soon after a shower, except when caught in natural or artificial tanks, so that there are no wells or springs in the red beds, while in the gray beds there are always springs and streams of running water. In the September of my 1901 expedition, the heaviest rain since May fell in torrents for an hour and a half. Water lay everywhere on the surface of the ground. But soon after the rain stopped, it had all disappeared. My son had discovered across the creek a locality which was rich in fossil invertebrates, consisting chiefly of straight and coiled nautilus-like shells, and shortly after the downpour I went over to set to work collecting them, as Dr. Burley had told me that the Munich Museum was anxious to secure such a collection. I had not been long at work before George shouted to me that if I did not want to swim I had better cross the creek again at once. I followed his advice so hastily that I left my tools behind. Instantly, a raging, boiling flood of water covered the rocks in the bed of the creek, over which I had just crossed dry shod, and rapidly rose to a height of eight feet, threatening to submerge my camp. Looking for a good place to work on my side of the creek, the west, I found the gulch which I have referred to above. There was a level floor, formed by the first stratum of the gray beds, extending about five hundred yards to a ledge of red sandstone, eight feet thick. The floor was covered with debris washed from the red beds. To my astonishment, although the surface was dry, a flood of water was rushing out from under the upper deposits and tumbling in a miniature waterfall over the gray ledge, which was nearly five feet thick, into the ravine below. The rock, I found, to be composed of four layers of sandstone. The upper layer, eight inches thick, is composed of fine-grained sand, which seems to have been ground to an impalpable powder by the beating of the waves. It is very compact and heavy, and upon exposure breaks into rectangular blocks, so perfect in shape that they can be used for building purposes without being touched by hammer or chisel. The second layer breaks into large blocks of many tons weight. It is coarser grained than number one, and is about twenty inches thick. It contains a few casts of invertebrate fossils. Number three is twelve inches thick, and is of the same general character as the other layers. It is literally packed with casts of straight and coiled shells relating to our living nautilus. They are mingled in great confusion. I believe some of the coiled shells are a foot in diameter. This stratum is not so compact as the others, and seems to contain more lime. Number four is a very solid gray sandstone, 
eight inches thick, its upper surface crossed at various angles by elevated ridges of harder material. From these observations, I am led to the conclusion that the pervious nature of the red beds, which in the valley of the Wichita are about 300 feet thick, allows the water to sink rapidly down through them until it reaches the impenetrable gray sandstone, from which it runs off at whatever angle the rocks may be tilted. End of section 12. Recording by Todd.